The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. While I'm updating my presentation, I'm just saving it so I cannot open it yet. Uh, My name is Jennifer Hall and the executive director of the Ann Arbor Housing Commission. Uh, I've been working at the Housing Commission since 2011. Uh, Prior to that, I worked in the Office of Community and Economic Development, first at the city, and then uh, when it became a joint county-city department, uh, then I continued working there until I came to the Housing Commission. So I've been with the city since 2003, Um, and I'll let Heather introduce herself while I pull this presentation up. Sure. Hi, my name is Heather Seiferth, and I um, have been at the Housing Commission for two and a half weeks now, so I'm really new on the scene here, so I'll be learning along with you. Uh, prior to that, I worked for the city itself uh, in the group called Systems Planning, which is a multidiscipline group, and I did long-range planning as well as community engagement. Okay, so you guys can see my screen. Oops, let me get started here. If anybody has any questions, you can go ahead and put them in the Q&A box. Um, Jennifer, Heather, whenever you want to answer those, you can. You can do it during or at the end, whatever you want. Okay. I guess I would, um, normally I can see people and normally I've done both in person and where I can see the participants. So it looks like there's about a dozen participants here. Um, Normally what I do when I start out is just ask folks, even if only four or five people uh, are willing to respond, like what what do you think, what does affordable housing mean to you? And it looks like you can only do that in the chat. So if there's uh, folks that be willing to just take a minute to say, you know, this is what it means to me. There's no right or wrong answer. Just trying to understand, you know, where folks are at, uh, what that those words mean to you. Uh, it could be uh, positive, could be triggering, could be anything. Uh, Jennifer, do you want them to, like, we can promote them all to panelists if, like, you wanted to have conversations with them? Oh, I'd love to. If we if we can do that, I would love it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm going to um, just go ahead and promote everybody to panelists. Um, if you are on and you do not want to be seen or heard from, totally, you don't have to. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and do that. One moment. And Sarah, are you going to sit through the full presentation? Yeah, I'll be here. So we can actually, um, people can just say out loud um, what it is that uh, affordable housing, if it means anything to you. And if you feel more comfortable writing and want to put something in the Q&A, then I can read it out loud for you. That'd be great. Thanks, Heather. Mm This is Ken, I'll just, uh, hi. Um, hi. I'll start by saying that to me, affordable housing, cause I really don't know anything on this topic. It means two things. One is where um, some people need um, true assistance for um, housing. And then the second category would be just cheaper housing for people just to live, especially if they have jobs where um, they make less money. Great, thank you. Thanks for sharing. Anybody else? Uh, this is Greg. 
to me, affordable housing has always specifically meant uh, subsidized housing. Okay, great. Anybody else? Yes. To me, um, oh, I'm go sorry. ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry, Ashley. This is Tracy. I'll put my camera on after I get done eating. Um, affordable housing to me means um, not paying more than 30% of your adjusted income for your rent. Great. I was going to give a very similar answer to that, Tracy. I'd always use 25% as the, whether it's a mortgage or rent, but nothing higher than that, preferably. Anybody else want to share? Or did anybody write anything, Heather? I haven't seen anything come through the Q&A yet. All right, I'm going to give another little bit here, see if anybody else would like to share. Yes, I really do have orange skin. I'm trying to minimize it with my uh, lighting here. <laughs> These are like very orange. <laughs> All right, great. Well, we have a fairly small um, group. I've had as large as like 35 folks. So I am happy to answer questions as we go along. I'm happy to have you just ask the question. Um, if you do raise your hand, um, I'm going to ask Heather to uh, see if she can see it, because I might not be able to see it. I can't see everybody at all at the same time while I'm presenting. So uh, feel free to interrupt uh, at any time that you need to. All right, I'm going to start the presentation. Uh, so the Annabelle Housing Commission, um, we are a part of the city, but also separate from the city. So we have our, we're our separate uh, public body corporate. Um, but we were created by the city of Ann Arbor in 19, early 1960s, and that uh, we are all city employees, which is unusual. Most housing authorities are actually independent from the city. Um, they are typically created by municipalities in the United States, but they're typically independent of them other than that their board gets appointed by uh, the city council and the mayor. So that's the case for us. Our board is appointed by the city council and mayor, uh, but we also are city employees. So it's a it's a unusual situation to be in. And in the state of Michigan and a couple other states, the enabling act to create housing authorities was um, enabled in Michigan prior to the federal government. So in Michigan, we're all called housing commissions because that's what the state of Michigan's Enabling Act calls us. But if you uh, hear HUD speak or anything like nationally talking about who we are, we're called housing authorities or public housing authorities, PHAs, uh, but we're all the, the same thing. And sometimes you'll hear public and Indian housing. And so there's also uh, Indian housing authorities as well, Native American uh, housing authorities. So uh, a couple people talked about how much you're paying for your income uh, out of your income, your household gross income on your housing costs. So from my perspective, um, affordable housing really is any income. It can apply to any income from a definition of um, trying not to pay more than 30% of your gross household income on your housing costs, whether you're a renter or whether you're a homeowner. Um, and one of the sort of newer definitions of what affordable housing in actually incorporates transportation as well, because if you're uh, in a community like Ann Arbor, that's a very high cost community, 
you may not be able to afford the housing that you want to live in. So you live farther and farther away. And so then you have higher and higher transportation costs. Whereas you might live, you know, in a uh, area with a lot, a high amount of public transportation, you don't need a car, you can live downtown. If you can find a place you can afford. And so your transportation costs are lower. Um, we specifically though target the type of housing that we build and we um, provide to our tenants at the lower end of the income range and if you think about i can't see everybody i'm assuming we have a range of uh, people's ages and, and incomes and background here but when i was uh, in college i probably paid you know 60 percent of my income on housing um, i live in ann arbor i own my own home um, i pay ann arbor taxes I probably pay 15% of my gross household income on my housing costs right now. So it can definitely be different and change over time for some folks, um, depending on what your, your income is. Um, but we also, as a student, we tend to not think of students as permanently low income. We tend to think of them as temporary low income and a lot of housing programs that are specifically geared toward providing um, lower than market rate cost housing uh, actually excludes students unless you're, for example, a veteran or you're, for example, um, a household that is a student, but you have uh, children. So things like that. So all different programs are all different from each other. Hi, Tracy. I see you just popped up on the screen. Welcome. Is there any questions about this particular slide? So who is the Housing Commission specifically? What do we do? We are called the Ann Arbor Housing Commission, but we uh, actually cover all of Washtenaw County and Monroe County, which seems a little bit odd, but we have a small number. I think we have usually about a dozen households that wanna live in Monroe County that are almost always veterans and pr probably participate and go to the VA that's in um, Toledo, Ohio rather than Ann Arbor. And so they wanna be closer to where, you know, they're getting their medical services. We both provide housing that we own. We have 17 properties. All of them are in the city of Ann Arbor, uh, just under 550 apartments. But our biggest program is our voucher program. So we have over 2000 vouchers throughout the county as well as Monroe County. Uh, we do have two sort of uh, smaller programs. One is our family self-sufficiency program and um, related, but not specifically, uh, our homeownership program. So our family self-sufficiency program is a program where we are trying to help families no longer need us, to no longer need subsidized housing, uh, to be financially independent. And so HUD has a program where they don't provide specifically uh, funding for the program, but they provide funding for our staff uh, to sort of provide help and uh, assistance to folks who want to voluntarily participate. And what they do is they are, are families set goals. Most often the goal is to become a homeowner, um, but it also can be go to school, start a business, um, buy a car. And so as their income increases, we actually put funds into an escrow account to match their increase in rent. And when they graduate from the program, they um, get to take that escrow funds and use it for whatever they want to use it for. We've had about, uh, we have 12 homeowners right now, but in our history, we've had maybe 15, 16 uh, homeowners, not because 
of the lack of desire, but because of the lack of ability to secure a mortgage. Um, you can use a voucher, which I'm going to go into more detail on how those work. You can also take a voucher and turn it into a voucher to help pay your mortgage, but you still have to be able to get a mortgage. So you still have to qualify and you still have to compete to find a house. So, you know, for those of us who live in this county, which we should all do, um, we know how hard that is. I'm going to talk about the housing that we own first. Uh, prior, we recently acquired uh, Lurie Terrace, which is a senior housing project. Prior to that, we had 100% of our housing was what you've probably heard of as public housing. Um, almost all of it was built in the early 1970s. Some of it, the most recent, was built in 1989. So we haven't had any new, quote, public housing built since 1989. Um, but I'm going to talk about how we no longer have public housing, but we do own housing that is very much uh, similar to public housing, but it's just not called public housing anymore. So this is kind of a breakdown of the size of the units that we own. Almost all of our studios are at Lurie Terrace, our senior property. Uh, prior to acquiring Lurie Terrace, 100% of our housing had rent subsidy built into the actual unit. And what that means is that anybody who lives in that apartment, they pay 30% of their income on rent. And then we have a rent subsidy through HUD that pays the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the rent. And so that's why that 30% um, of your income is sort of the most common definition of affordable housing because there's so many HUD programs where that is how they calculate what's affordable as they try to hit that 30% income target. Um, I think someone mentioned 25%. The more I do this work, sometimes I think it's 20%. The lower your income is, the harder it is because you don't have much money left over for basically your food, your, you know, your medical care, your transportation, et cetera. It just becomes harder and harder. This is the distribution of the housing that we own. Um, you can't tell by the little icons how many units are at each location. Um, but we do have a lot in Ward 5 and Ward 3. Um, ward 2, very higher, much higher um, income, more, much higher housing costs in that ward, uh, as well as Ward um, 1. And you could say the same for Ward 4. So uh, I would love to have those little icons of affordable housing in every single ward, you know, equally distributed. Um, I don't think that'll ever happen, but it, it, it would be wonderful to have more distribution in all kinds of neighborhoods. Um, there was once a duplex that was for sale uh, last year in Ann Arbor Woods neighborhood, which is a really high income neighborhood. And the duplex was, I think it was like 1.1 or 1.2 million. And I was like, oh my gosh, we'll never buy housing in this neighborhood. Should we buy this $1.2 million duplex when I could buy three duplexes in another neighborhood and serve more households. So like those are the kind of choices you end up making is more households served or, you know, having more income diversity in neighborhoods. So um, it's always something that we're thinking about. This little chart just shows you what for the folks that do live with us that we track their income if they have some kind of rent subsidy. Um, most of our folks make under $25,000 a year. Uh, we do have about 60% of our households have a disability, 
Um, some folks with a disability are on social security disability, some are elderly, um, some are working, and most of our families have household members that are working. Um, many of our single adults are single adults with a disability that, that are not working, but we do have a lot of families that do have jobs. Are there any questions about this particular slide or so far? Uh, so in our voucher program, the difference between our housing uh, that we own and manage and um, similarly that others own and manage that have uh, subsidies, rent subsidies attached to the apartment, what happens is anytime somebody moves out, they don't take the subsidy with them, the subsidy stays with that apartment. So the next person who moves in gets the benefit of having that rent subsidy. So we call that project-based uh, subsidy or project-based rental assistance, uh, but this subsidy is attached to the unit. In our tenant-based voucher program, um, the subsidies attached to the family. And so the family can take their rent subsidy and go anywhere in Washtenaw or Monroe County and find a place to move into that fits within the voucher size, the voucher rent amount that they have um, that passes housing quality standards and a few other things. And then they can, when they decide to move from where they're living, they take that voucher with them and they can move to another location. And so it's often perceived in um, among our residents that a tenant-based voucher is a better situation than uh, living in our housing because you can take it anywhere you want. You have more flexibility. It's called housing choice uh, to give people that choice of where they wanna live. Uh, but as you can see from this map, um, it still means that the it's not so easy to see because of the way the dots are, because this can represent, one dot can represent a multifamily location with 20 people living there. Um, but about two thirds, 60%-ish, somewhere in there, it, you know, fluctuates of our households actually live in the city of Ipsy or Ipsy Township. Um, about 30% in the city of Ann Arbor and then a little bit here and there. So you can call it housing choice if you want, but if you really wanted to take your tenant-based voucher and live in the city of Ann Arbor, you're not gonna find very many places that you can afford even with that rent subsidy because the rents are so high, they exceed what we call our payment standard, which is the amount of rent subsidy we're allowed uh, to provide uh, to a family to live in, in a private rental situation. Uh, there's just huge amounts of competition and so it makes it very hard for people to find a place to live here. Uh, you can see there's like different numbers to, you know, different types of vouchers listed here. Um, there's often HUD has different, I call them pilot programs. I get actually kind of annoyed with HUD when they come up with new ideas and come up with new programs with new rules. I'm like, just expand the number of vouchers. And, and if you want some folks to be, homeless or you want some folks to serve, you want us to serve more disabled households or you want us to serve families, fine, but keep them in the same program with the same rules, but they tend to make special programs. And these are some of the special programs of which we have uh, various vouchers. The, um, this map is showing, it, you're, not, you're not gonna be able to really tell a big difference, but this map is actually showing, can't even read my own map. Oh, okay. Total number of vouchers leased up in all programs. So this is both 
uh, project-based voucher programs and tenant-based voucher programs. And you can still see it's similar to this one, um, but this map would actually include our housing that we own or housing that's owned by Avalon or Michigan Ability Partners that we have project-based vouchers um, on those sites. Um, and so that's, uh, there's a little bit more in Ann Arbor when you look at ones that we can project-based vouchers. And so that is one way from a policy perspective that you can ensure that folks have that opportunity if they want to live in Ann Arbor, they have kids, they want to go to Ann Arbor Public Schools, or they work in Ann Arbor, or they just need access to transportation. So if you end up doing uh, housing in the city of Ann Arbor and we put project-based vouchers on them, that is always, always going to have that ability for those units to be available for a low-income household. Do we have any questions about any of that voucher situation? Okay, so how is the Housing Commission actually funded? Um, the vast majority of, fun majority of funds that we administer are actually that actual rent subsidy itself. And so you can see that blue on the bottom is the funds that we are essentially the pass-through, but the administrator between a private landlord and the tenant um, that ends up being that rent subsidy. Uh, the next amount that red is, you know, administering our voucher program and et cetera. Um, and the top part, the brown, this went, I did this through 2021. So this is before the affordable housing village was passed in the city of Ann Arbor. Uh, prior to that, there was only about hundred, it ranged from year to year, but the last couple of years, about $160,000 a year in city general funds. So the vast majority of our funds are either um, rents from our own tenants that pay us rent, but the vast majority is HUD, HUD funds. So I like to say when I talk to city council and city administration that we are leveraging a lot of funds that are not coming from the city. So we're a great leverager of outside resources. This chart is showing um, one of the challenges with the voucher program. So for those who don't have a steeped history in this stuff, which I'm assuming most of you do not, there's a long history of uh, public housing up until, um, I'm not gonna remember off the top of my head now, I wanna say the late 70s or early 80s is when the government started moving away from, the federal government started moving away from the idea of public housing and, and came up with this idea of vouchers, of tenant-based vouchers. And so there was this major shift in funding from fixed locations to take uh, these vouchers and we're gonna have a public-private partnership you know, with private landlords um, out in the community to provide housing. And as I mentioned before, um, Sometimes these, these are great ideas and policy, but in practical reality, it doesn't mean people end up having a lot of choices where they're gonna live. They don't necessarily end up in uh, neighborhoods or housing that are um, higher quality just because they have a choice. It's because um, it depends on where they can find a landlord who will take their voucher. Now the city of Ann Arbor and Ipsy City both have ordinances in place that say, you cannot discriminate against a, uh, potential tenant who's applying for your housing based on the source of income, whether that's, you know, social security, disability, or whether their rent is going to be paid for with a voucher subsidy. 
um, other communities and everywhere across the United States. And prior to that, uh, we had um, landlords, property managers that would say, we don't take vouchers, flat out. We don't take vouchers. Now they have to screen folks like they do any other, anybody else, anybody else. Everybody has to be screened the same. Otherwise they have a fair housing violation. And then um, they can't say, oh, sorry, you have a voucher. You meet all of our other screening criteria. So we will not accept your voucher. There can be other ways people get screened out. They can get screened out because they don't have a high enough credit score or literally the landlord can say you have to have this much income or um, have a really good positive previous uh, history with other landlords and that kind of thing. Um, so anyway, back to this chart, sorry, totally went off schedule. So you can see the blue uh, increased significantly over the last five, six years and keeps going up actually. The red is the amount of money we receive from HUD to administer all of these vouchers. And so that's the part of our um, relationship with the city where we are trying to expand the ability to have more um, housing in the community that people with low incomes can live in. Uh, but we do need that ongoing general fund subsidy just to administer those programs because uh, HUD does what they call prorating their admin fee and it's never 100% of what they say it costs to run the program because it's 100% dependent on politicians in the federal government. So they'll tell us, um, we believe it'll cost you, I'm making this number up, a million dollars to administer this program. And then they say, well, but we only have enough money to give you 800,000. Good luck, do your program, follow our rules. Good luck next year. Or, you know, you get, you get uh, penalized if you're not following their rules, but that is how it literally works. And then this is just a chart showing uh, what happened was HUD recognized that there was insufficient funding for public housing. There was, there, you probably all heard horrible stories about, you know, really large uh, Cabrini Green or um, other um, large public housing sites all over the U.S. and mostly in urban areas um, that are completely disinvested in. Um, have a lot of high crime, um, you know, they're not being upkept, but the, it's not a, I can't say it's a, due to a lack of desire or ability of the housing authority to manage those units. I can definitely say there's a disinvestment and a continuing cuts in funding for public housing, and it's been going on for decades. And so literally when I started in uh, 2011, um, I took a tour of all of our properties and I was like, holy moly, we are a slumlord. Like, oh my God, how can we bring up the standards of the housing that we're in? And then I looked at our finances and I'm like, oh, there's not enough money. There's not enough money to pay for a new roof or to fix the elevator or to put new flooring in. Um, and so HUD saw that and recognized that as well. And they came up with a new program called rental assistance demonstration that was a pilot program and they said uh you know hey um public housing is a thing of the past it's not supported politically but we still have all this housing we still have all this need um we still need to house low-income households so let's convert um through a pilot program public housing to project-based vouchers 
that are attached to the units, but are in a different part of HUD's budget. Um, it's in the voucher side of HUD's budget, so it's better funded. Not greatly funded, but better funded. And so our old housing, the blue is showing what the rent was from tenants. The red is the public operating funds. The green is the public housing uh, capital funds. So we were getting about $500,000 a year to do improvements to our, our 500, you know, or I guess we had, then we had about a little under 400 units. Um, and literally $500,000 isn't enough to replace an elevator. You know, it's not enough to replace all of your furnaces. Um, it's just simply not enough money to do your capital improvements. And so in 2013, when HUD put this pilot program out there, we immediately applied um, to be part of that first group to test out this idea. And um, we were one of 10 housing authorities in the United States that were approved for what's called a portfolio conversion, which means not just one building, but all of our buildings. We got to convert to this new project-based voucher model, which is better funded, um, more consistent funding. Um, the only problem with the program from my side is that HUD didn't say, we're gonna give you more money to fix up your buildings, but you can only convert if you, Housing Commission, you raise all the money to fix up your buildings as part of the conversion. So on this chart, you can see as we started to convert more and more of our public housing to project-based vouchers, the blue uh, rent increased because we actually added more housing to, we actually tore some places down and built new. So we had more renters. Um, the, we, we started to um, decrease the public operating fund and the capital fund. And once we finally converted everything, the purple is the rent subsidy attached to the tenants. And you can see it's just much better funded. And we were able to use all of that rent subsidy and rent to actually start um, maintaining our building, just regular operations. All right, I'm gonna pause there for a sec to see if people have any questions. All right. Um, when when we um, started doing this conversion of our housing, there was uh, coincidentally also another change at HUD, which was that they uh, have a homeless program. They have a homeless component of the HUD budget, um, specifically for um, obviously homeless households. So the old model was to put funding towards shelters. So uh, about the same time when we were doing this conversion under RAD, HUD had this change um, in best practices that had been um, identified through the, sorry about that, that was identified through the um, nonprofit sector, um, years of practice working with homeless households to um, say that the best practices is housing uh, first, if it, I'll explain what that is if you haven't heard of it, as well as uh, permanent supportive uh, housing. And what that means is instead of saying uh, you can be in this shelter, but you're not allowed to have any kind of housing until you've um, dealt with whatever barriers, whatever uh, physical, mental, emotional health issues are going on with you, that you can prove to us that you can live independently in housing. And so the new model is no, no, no. The first thing you need is housing. 
like how do you deal with your addictions, your mental health issues, your physical uh, disabilities, if you literally don't have a safe, secure place to live every night um, that you can um, build from. And so that's the housing first model. And then when you pair it with on-site services, permanent supportive housing, uh, then you have a service provider that provides voluntary um, sort of holistic um, client-centered case management that can cover whatever the individual need of that household is, whether it's the adults, the kids, the grandmother, whoever. Um, and so I have a, a bunch of our partners that we work with that as we did this conversion, we also added a lot of support service provider partnerships into our old public housing system so that now we have services at every single one of our apartments um, that we own. All right, I'm gonna stop here for a second. Any questions about any of that? Is this a question that other people wonder? How are low-income residents impacted by the city of Ann Arbor's housing market? Any thoughts? You wanna throw anything out there? <laughs> I mean, from my perspective, it seems like Ann Arbor is an expensive housing market, so and it keeps going up, so yeah. I'm sure that impacts. Absolutely. Anybody else want to add to that? I have a lot of friends who've um, looked for housing and been un unable to find housing they can afford in Ann Arbor, and I don't think any of those friends would really count as low income, and they have the ability to, and the resources to then find housing outside and commute to Ann Arbor. So I can only imagine that truly low-income residents are are hard up. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why when I talked at the beginning, it's like, it doesn't matter if you make $100,000 or $10,000. Um, if you can't find a place to live that's affordable to you, then you, cannot, you are not able to live in affordable housing or you choose to spend a lot of your income on your housing costs or, and or your transportation. So what is the uh, income in Ann Arbor? Um, this is last year's. They're about, usually in April, they publish new uh, median incomes. This is pub published by the federal government every year. And this is what we use for all of our various HUD programs. Um, so we base it on Ann Arbor's area median income, which is all of Washtenaw County. It's the Ann Arbor primary, primary metropolitan statistical area. Uh, so it includes all of Washtenaw County and it's, the median family income is 117,800. I can't see it. Whoopsie, didn't mean to do that. I got to move you guys so I can see. So the USA is uh, median income is 79.9 in comparison. Um, so we are quite a bit higher. It's probably not a shock uh, to anyone that we're higher than the median across the United States. So what HUD does is they say, okay, the median income is 117,800. How do I income qualify people for my programs? HUD says, we're gonna stick that in a household of four at the median income. And every other number you see in this chart is a formula. It's a formula. So it doesn't matter. You couldn't say, wow, we have half of our residents or one person households or whatever, 25% because we have so many students. HUD doesn't care what your individual community situation is, they start with the median income, they stick it in a four person household, and every one of these numbers is part of a formula. 
but this is the formula that we have to use when we income qualify people for our programs. Um, the 60% of median income is highlighted a little bit bold because that's the target that uh, the city um, administration, city council, the mayor um, over the, I don't know, probably 15, 20 plus years has uh, targeted as the um, household income limit for a lot of our city programs. So that's the limit on uh, for the affordable housing village, for example, which I'll talk about later. Uh, within our programs, our HUD programs that we administer, 50% of area median income is the cap uh, for anybody with a voucher subsidy. And so different programs have different income limits. The county administers some federal funds that are at 80% of median income. So it just depends on the program, but we all use the same chart. And so if you take that chart and you convert it and say, okay, if those are my incomes, what's 30% of that so that I know what the target um, maximum household housing costs are. And so that's converting it uh, to this chart. And so at that 60% of AMI, um, no more than $1,237 for somebody at 60% of AMI who's a one-person household and so on. And you might be rightly thinking, wow, that is still really high. Yes, because we have a very high income in the city of Ann Arbor and it keeps going up. Last year, so this year's 117,000, last year was 106. I've never seen in my 20 some years of doing this work, a $11,000 increase in the median income in our community. It's usually, you know, $500, $1,000, you know, maybe, maybe $15 or $2,000. We took a huge leap uh, between 2021 and 2022. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in seeing what happens for uh, 2023. So this is the income um, limits, but obviously you can have that as your income limit and have folks that uh, live in that housing that are less than the maximum. And so we actually, when we set our rents uh, for properties that we have the ability to do that, we try to set them lower than what the maximum is. So you have the greatest range of people who can live there because unless you have an actual rent subsidy, like an actual rent subsidy. There are programs that have rents that are less than market rate, but there's no rent subsidy. So you still got to pay the full rent. And it doesn't matter if you are at 30% AMI, 35% or 50% AMI, you're all paying the same amount of rent. Does that make sense? I'm going to give an example of, so the city has within our zone planning and zoning ordinance, um, we have various ways that a private for-profit developer, it doesn't be for-profit, but it tends to be a private developer um, is required to include some market rate, I'm sorry, some affordable units in their market rate housing. And so the income limits are set by this chart and they, you know, every year it changes. And then the city tries to come up with a formula of setting the actual rents, or it could be a ownership amount. If it's an owner, it could be an owner amount. Um, so we try to hit that target and this includes utilities. But there's no rent subsidy. There's no rent voucher. Um, so the rents are fixed. And anybody who moves in has to be less than that income. 
but you could be a lot less or a little bit less. You're all gonna pay the same amount, okay? And if somebody, which has happened, if somebody moves in, so like um, Beekman on Broadway has, I'm gonna forget the exact number, I wanna say seven or eight, and they've got another seven or eight um, scheduled to come online. They are, their rents are set, they're well below their market rate rents um, for the same unit as their market rate, same design and all that. Um, and we have two tenants with tenant-based vouchers who live there. So they actually only pay 30% of their income on rent and then the voucher pays the rest of it, but somebody else without a voucher subsidy pays the full amount, okay? So what are the what are the typical rents in Ann Arbor? You will when you talk about HUD programs, we often talk about fair market rents, and basically HUD also publishes this every year. And what they say is we're going to look at your market, and um, we're going to determine we're going to look at everything in your marketplace. We're going to determine the 40th percentile of all your units. I have no idea. There's a long explanation of how they do this, uh, but we're not going to count anything that's two years old or less. And we're not going to count any subsidized housing like the housing we own. And so then they try to come up with this, what's called fair market rent. And um, this has a little bit of bearing on um, what our voucher payments are, but you can kind of see the, the trends, the obvious upward trends, and particularly more recently than even, you know, uh, 30 years ago for the one in a two bedroom. All right, I'm gonna talk a little bit about um, the impact back prior to fair housing and civil rights laws. I'm gonna take a little bit of shift here, but it's it's impactful because um, over 60% of our tenants are black. Um, there's a long history in urban areas where uh, most of the folks who are participating in hub, HUD programs are black, but that's not true uh, when you look at the entire state. There's actually more uh, people who are participating in these programs that are white from a like a national perspective, but it's more um, rural areas. And so like if you, when I talk to my various housing authorities that are all over the state, up in the UP, upper lower peninsula, um, they are almost exclusively white households that are participating in their programs. But when you're in an urbanized area like Ann Arbor, uh, prior to the fair housing and civil rights laws in the 1960s, this is a map of uh, where African-American populations lived because that's where they were allowed to live. And so you can vaguely faintly see the outline of the city of Ann Arbor right here. And this orange area um, is actually in and around where Carytown is. So in and around where Carytown is in the old west side, the near old west side, is where uh, African-Americans were allowed to live. They were excluded from other neighborhoods, um, as well as recent immigrants of all different kinds of, from different countries, you know, whether it's from Europe or uh, the Middle East or Africa, a lot of new migrants, that's where they ended up living. Um, community high school used to be Jones Elementary School, which was the elementary school for that neighborhood. And there was a very active black business district on uh, Ann Street and Fourth um, Avenue. And so one of our projects that I'll be talking about later is actually uh, in that neighborhood and a couple of other ones too that I'll talk about some of the things that we're doing over there. Um, you can also see that the highest concentration of where 
uh, black households were able to live was in the south side of Ypsilanti where this brown, darker brown is down here. And then that orange area is in and around uh, the Willow Run um, plant, the bomber plant that used to be there that a lot of um, families moved from the south in the Great Migration and came up north and many of them had jobs in manufacturing businesses in and around those neighborhoods. And then if you, I can't remember all my slides. Okay, so if you jump to uh, today, um, it's very different. Um, obviously you're not allowed to, although it does happen in lots of different ways, discriminate based on race. Uh, it just happens in more subtle ways now. But you can see that um, historically um, where uh, black households were allowed to live and where they live now, there's still a higher concentration of uh, black households in the Ypsilanti city, Ypsilanti township areas. Um, and that's just a, a change in you know demographics, but also there's, it kind of mirrors, but it's not an exact replacement for um, where the low, lower income households live. There's a higher uh, poverty in uh, parts of Ipsy and Ipsy Township as well. And housing prices are reflective of that as well too. And we literally have had, um, historically had um, city officials in the city of Ypsilanti and Ipsy Township say, please stop building or having anybody with vouchers live in our neighborhoods. Uh, we have uh, too many people who are, are low income. Um, and that's really is starting to change, particularly in the city of Ypsilanti. Uh, there's a, a different, um, I think the housing pressures are really um, being felt there more than they ever have. And so there's more of an embracing of uh, um, preserving affordable housing there as uh, uh, into the future as well. So when you look at um, Ann Arbor, uh, one thing that I don't like to do is do this map, which is, hey, where's all the poverty? Um, people talk about concentrations of poverty and uh, you don't wanna have too many um, low-income people in the same neighborhood. And we have too many low, you know, I hear I go to public meetings, they're like, you have, there's a concentration of poverty here, the concentration of poverty there. And I'm like, ah, not so much. So when you look at these maps, is there anything about Ann Arbor that stands out about where our census tracts are that are high poverty? From my perspective, I would say it's the area to the north and to the east. And what what type of housing is in that area? Um, it's not nearly as dense as uh, like downtown. Anybody like single-family housing, I'm guessing. Some of it, some of it. But what about the areas around around the downtown and? Heading is down. that all student housing? Yes, ma'am. It is almost exclusively part of campus area. So in and around the campus. And so what happens when you're a student is you get your census form just like the rest of us. And uh, you say, I make $4,000 a year. Guess what? You are high poverty. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily reflect what you're family might be supporting you on as a student. I mean, there's obviously students that really are low income, that really are from low income families, but 
uh, the vast majorities of students are not low income, but when you do a map based on poverty in Ann Arbor, our map surrounds the campus. Um, you can see it's also around Washtenaw Community College and EMU, but the rest of the high poverty census tracts are in Ypsilanti and Ipsy Township and a little bit in Superior Township as well. So Ann Arbor doesn't have any high poverty census tracts. Um, you know, it could change next year, it could change in five years, but we really don't have any high poverty census tracts. The one census tract um, in the farthest north that Ken pointed out, which is in a low density neighborhood, has the largest subsidized housing property there, which is the bulk of the poverty. Um, I forget how many units this is like 400 and some. If anybody lives over in that area, you might be familiar with it. Um, Parkview Meadows is over there. And so that's what's driving that particular census tract, not the students. All right, I'm gonna stop here and see if anybody has any comments or questions or anything. And then uh, I forgot I had this in here. So when you look at our high poverty uh, in Ann Arbor, in Ann Arbor, not county, this is literally Ann Arbor. You can see what I'm talking about, where there's the vast majority are in that you know college age uh, range. So what I like to do instead is say, okay, how many people are on some kind of public assistance? That gives me a better idea of where um, non college student low-income households live. Um, so this is what it looks like. That same census tract where Parkview Meadows is, uh, the two gray census tracts are non, there's no information. I, I forget, I've been meaning to look this up, but I think there are no, um, virtually no housing there. I think that one in Ann Arbor is a part of the campus. Um, so the other places you can see it are um, in and around Bryant uh, School, uh, Arbor Oaks neighborhood, Stony Brook neighborhood, uh, where the co-ops are, uh, down on the southern side, southeast side of Ann Arbor, a little bit right in the center of Ann Arbor. There's a few uh, low-income uh, housing uh, right downtown Ann Arbor, like Courthouse Square, which is senior housing. We have a property on the corner of Packard and uh, Maine. And then that little yellow census tract to the west, uh, there are... Um, there's a co-op there. We have a housing uh, site there. Michigan Ability Partners does, Avalon does. So there's actually a little bit of a cluster there. That's probably the, the those are the few places that in Ann Arbor, there's a high concentration of poverty. And even then it's, you know, 10 to 20%. And then one of them is 20 to 30%. Um, the rest of the high poverty neighborhoods, when you look at it from who's on public assistance is again, on the Eastern side of the county. That's where the highest poverty is. All right, I'm gonna talk about um, just the impact, community impact on uh, on our high housing costs. So there's a, you know, if you ever know anyone who is in danger of losing their housing, they can't pay their rent, there's a organization, it's not even an organization, there's a coalition of nonprofits plus the county, plus the city um, that have a centralized, um, intake and assessment for folks who are losing their housing, are homeless, uh, or need some kind of housing assistance. It's called Housing Access of Washtenaw County. 
the uh, I should put the phone number on here. Uh, it's nine six one one nine nine nine. Currently, it is administered by the Office of Community Economic Development at the county. Um, these are just some call data. I can't remember what dates I've got. I've got October, you know, eighteen hundred uh, calls a month. Um, this is October is pretty pretty um, standard. I just saw some new data from the county today. They had a little over 2,000 calls in a single month. Um, and this is what the um, distribution of homeless households are in our county between August 21 to August 2022. Um, and this is also fairly standard other than what we're seeing if if I continued this out I just I got to update my maps because I just saw one from the county today for I think January or February was their most recent data and the distribution um, is significantly higher among families than it's ever been and so the the chronically homeless individual adults and the um, veterans, um, they are roughly kind of saying the same. And in fact, uh, because, oops, sorry, because we have a pretty robust uh, funding for veterans based on a federal priority over the last, oh, probably seven, eight years, um, we have really reduced the number of homeless vets in the community, whether they're adults, uh, single adults or couples or people with families, uh, it's very much reduced. Um, but the families that are not veterans is drastically, drastically uh, increasing. And in fact, uh, Anniversary City Council approved a little over $300,000 uh, last week at their council meeting, specifically to help with eviction prevention for families that are uh, currently about to become homeless. So to help pay back owed rent so they can stay in their housing and provide assistance to them. And what we're seeing in the court system uh, and what we see within our families that we work with that have vouchers, et cetera, and what we're seeing in the calls is about a little over 75% of the families that are being evicted are um, single black female headed households. Um, so it's a real uh, equity issue uh, uh, related to race, related to income, related to poverty. Um, that we're trying to address. And it's very hard when there's not housing available that's affordable or that we can't provide some kind of serious uh, rent subsidies to, but uh, we are trying to address that. Okay, I'm gonna pause there, see if there's any comments or questions. I have a question. Yep. Um, do you think that the increase in the families that you're seeing is that because the price of rent is going up or is there something else happening that's preventing these families from being able to stay where they are? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're seeing, that's definitely part of it. Um, definitely part of it. Um, part of it is also the loss of CIRA, like CIRA funding, if you heard of CIRA is the related to the um, COVID funding that was um, approved at the federal level. They had a very big eviction prevention program and there was an eviction moratorium for a very long time. Uh, long time meaning like a year and a half. It felt like might've been more. And so 
uh, folks were able to stay housed who had disruptions to their incomes of their family while sim simultaneously rents are just escalating like really like significant amounts every year that we just haven't seen in the past. Um, when we set our um, payment standards, which I won't give you the long bureaucratic description of it, other than to say um, the way we set it in the past, we kind of did it right in the middle where we could set it. Then we had to do it at the top level that we could set it. And now we've got waivers from HUD to set our payment standard 10% higher than what's allowed by HUD without a waiver, because we just can't, even with families with um, vouchers, they cannot find housing that fits within that voucher without us really increasing um, the voucher amount that we will pay. And when there's a tight housing market, which I'm going to talk to about, talk, go into a little more depth now, um, owners can just keep charging more rent and um, trying to get the best cream of the crop tenants they can get. So they're not very tolerant of any kind of lease violations or, you know, if you get behind your month uh, rent in one month, it's like people are going quicker to eviction processes than they used to. Any other questions or comments? So what is the biggest driver in our community? Um, who is our biggest employer? It's the University of Michigan. So both in, and I'm sure so some of you on this call who are employees of the University of Michigan, I'm not blaming you for our housing crisis. I'm just identifying that our biggest employer is the University of Michigan by far uh, in the county. And um, also the number of students that the university has been um, admitting keeps on increasing significantly without significant increasing significant increases in the housing the university has provided. Um, so you may have seen the most recent news that the University of Michigan is actually about to add thousands of um, dorms over where the um, Fingerly Lumber Company and Elbow Field is in that area. They're, and they've actually bought up some existing privately, you know, um, owned homes to tear down and add some more housing. And I'm super excited about that because absolutely the student population drives our housing market. Um, we're hearing, I've never heard this until the last couple of years, where I'll talk at various student gatherings um, that I get invited to do. And they'll be like, hey, I live in Ipsy Township by Gulfside. Like never have I heard so many students say, I can't even live in Ipsy. I can't live in Ann Arbor. I can't live in the outskirts of Ann Arbor. I can't live in Pittsfield Township. Like I am practically in Wayne County because that's all the housing I can find uh, that I can afford. So when we have U of M students that are going into housing markets that are competing with our tenants too, um, it makes it harder for our tenants to find housing. So even though the U of M doesn't pay uh, property taxes, they're doing a huge uh, benefit to the community by actually building more housing because they have a, they've been a huge impact on the housing crisis that we're in.
this is just showing it sort of in another way of the student population versus the U of M enrollment. It's definitely a big, you know, we have fairly fixed boundaries. So, you know, as the enrollment increases, we have more impact on our housing market. This is showing a map of Ann Arbor um, related to who pays property taxes and what's exempt. There's a very large number of the parcels in red are non-tax paying parcels. So it does impact the rest of us who live in Ann Arbor um, and our tax rate, which I'm sure we are all feeling. I feel it too. Um, and a lot of that is not, not necessarily all U of M. A lot of it is actually parks that are owned by the city of Ann Arbor as well. Because um, everything in the city of Ann Arbor, the county owns, uh, they also do not pay taxes. So you can see actually 16.1% um, is city owned compared to the university. People are often surprised by that. We, um, a couple of years ago, we did a housing needs assessment um, as we were looking at, um, and I'm gonna go into more detail on the city's millage and what developments we're doing, um, trying to like make sure that we're on target on understanding how much need there was for various income brackets. So uh, we did this housing needs assessment. This is just was just done for the downtown area, not including uh, anything that is um, north of, or not north, east of State Street. Um, so it was trying to exclude the primarily student area, although there's students obviously that live um, west of State Street as well. But um, here's just some of the numbers. So, you know, well over a thousand demand for folks at under 30% AMI, you know, almost a thousand, 31 to 60, and, you know, almost 500 for 61 to 100% of AMI. So when people ask me, why don't you come up with a plan and say, you need X number of units for this size or this income or for seniors, I'm like, you can build anything you want that's affordable housing and there is still more demand than whatever we can build. So I know that anything that we do, um, there's, a, there's a demand for it, 100%. Okay, um, I'm gonna start my section on development. I'm gonna take a drink, I'm gonna pause. And if you have questions before I go into this, now's a good time. Questions, thoughts, anyone? Heather, anything you want to add up to this point? No, I just appreciate everything that you're sharing. This is this is Heather's orientation as well, because she just started. <laughs> this is what I do. This is the orientation I give to city council members as well as to my staff when we have new staff. Okay, so you may be wondering why, if there's such a huge demand for affordable housing, why isn't the private sector building it? Why are they building such high cost, you know, high end, expensive apartments? There is zero way, zero, 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 zero way to build housing affordable in our marketplace and probably most marketplace. Uh, to 60% AMI or even median income or less, or e even maybe 120, maybe, no, not really, probably more like medium or less, maybe 80% income or less without some kind of subsidy, whether that's free land, whether that's 
subsidy at the beginning of your development uh, so you don't have um, so you have like grant like money that help bring the, the cost down a development or um, some kind of rent subsidy like we have so that you may have high rents, but there's a rent subsidy built in. And so you still have enough rent revenue to cover your operating costs. It, it just cannot be done. The costs are just too high. Um, and particularly in Washtenaw County, that's probably not a surprise, but uh, it is just a fact. Um, when people think about um, where the where what the biggest programs subsidized programs are uh, in the United States, um, most often people think that it's HUD. And uh, this chart is a in some ways it's out of date because um, during the Trump administration there was a change to the tax code that would change this chart a bit. Um, but there's actually the biggest subsidy historically is not HUD and it's not rental, it's actually home ownership. So those of us who own our homes and have owned it uh, since before the tax changes happened a couple of years ago, um, I've always written off on my taxes, um, my mortgage interest, my mortgage, my, um, my tax payments on my um, income tax returns. That actually uh, is the largest amount of subsidy of housing in the United States came from that uh, part of the IRS code. It is not a uh, as much as the HUD as much as what HUD provides. Um, like I said, things have changed. I don't have up to date um, chart, but the other thing that's changed is there's been more funding going towards housing through HUD as well. But in fact, the largest program that exists right now for rental housing, um, new development of rental housing that's for low-income households is called the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. It's actually administered by the IRS. It's not administered by HUD. It's also the most significant source of funding for what the Housing Commission is currently um, using to develop our properties. Uh, this is a chart showing the change in HUD funding. Um, a lot of that change happened because of COVID. Um, the housing crisis is now um, reaching all corners of the United States. People are becoming more aware of it from their constituents, you know, that are all spectrums of the um, of the political spectrum. And so it's becoming something that people care more and more about. And so we're seeing increases actually in the HUD's, uh, in HUD's budget to do more housing type programs of all types. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about how do you actually uh, develop affordable housing compared to market rate. Um, just like market rate, we have to have land. Just like market rate, I got to hire an architect. I got to hire an engineer. I got to pay for lumber. I got to pay for screws. I got to pay for toilets. So our cost, the cost of actually physically developing of any kind of housing is pretty much the same. There's some you know, they may have higher end finishes and things like that. So the market rate's gonna be a little bit nicer, but that's just a small amount of our development budget. The real budget costs are pretty similar to each other. Um, the biggest difference really between the two types of housing is how you pay for it. And so on the market rate side, and this is a broad generality, uh, the biggest difference really is 
where the money come from comes from to pay for the actual development. So on the market rate side, the largest source of funding tends to be from loans, um, investor loans, bank loans, whatever kind of loans you can put together, and then equity from investors and yourself and your friends and whoever you're getting uh, equity fund. Either way, um, a loan like your mortgage has a sort of a fixed um, expected uh, uh, payment to pay off your principal and interest, whereas uh, equity investor uh, expects some kind of return on their investment, and it's going to fluctuate depending on how successful your um, project is, but it's, it's money that has to get paid back to somebody. Um, on the, on the affordable housing side, we actually are flipped where we have a larger percent of our funding comes from equity, but that equity is actually not something we have to pay back. What it is, is equity from uh, low-income housing tax credits where the IRS uh, allocates a certain amount of tax credits to every state of, in the um, United States. The state of Michigan through MISHTA administers the tax credit program, the LIHTC program in Michigan. Um, it has a, an amount of tax credits. Um, it's competitive. They have two rounds every year. So we have to compete with any other developer of affordable housing, the majority of which are uh, for-profit developers, not nonprofit developers. Um, but when we are able to win a tax credit award, the housing commission doesn't pay taxes. We don't pay um, income taxes. We don't really pay much in tax, property taxes, but this is the income tax based um, program. And so what we do is we get awarded our tax credits. Let's say it's uh, $10 million. Then we go out and sell it to an investor, an equity investor, and they uh, we bid it out and the highest bidder, um, let's say wins. And let's say they offer us 92 cents on the dollar. So they give us $9.2 million in cash and they get to write off $10 million in tax credits. There's a lot of other things, details I'm not gonna explain in there, but they also get to write off um, annual depreciation, which is significant of the project once it's built. So we don't have to pay that equity back. The equity investor actually uh, gets their money back through their um, tax return by not paying, uh, having to pay taxes, plus additional ways on top of that to increase that um, amount that they can write off. And then depending on the project, we also end up with loans that we do have to pay back. And the lower the income target that we have for the project that we're building, the more grants we need. So that's on the right side. So we have a lot of equity, a little bit of loan and more grants. Sometimes we have only grant and equity, or if it's a really small project, it might be all grants. So it's on how you um, pay for the development that's different and what does that make the, um, we're gonna call this a rent, all rental. What does it make the rents look like? So when you look at the rental side, the operations of you know market rate versus uh, affordable, roughly the same, but ours actually tends to be more costly than the private sector uh, because we do that supportive housing. Uh, we try to screen tenants in, not screen tenants out. So we do a lot more um, social work type um, interactions with our tenants than a private landlord. And, and so our, our actually our um, operating costs tend to be a little higher, but you can see in orange, 
a vast majority of the private sectors actually using rents to pay off their debt that they had to borrow to build the building that they build. And so the again, the lower our incomes are, the less debt we take on so that we have more money for operations because we can't afford to pay debt when our rents are lower. Um, the other thing is, um, you can see in yellow, um, the market rate side, they pay taxes. In Ann Arbor, the city of Ann Arbor has a payment in lieu of taxes for qualifying affordable projects where we pay $1 per unit per year. And so that immediately allows us to reduce our rents because we don't have to pay those taxes. And then the um, return on investment in dark blue is to the you know, investors that the market rate side had. And, and um, we have cash flow if we take on debt because we have to maintain like a 1.2 debt service coverage ratio. So that's what that cash flow is. We, we turn around and take cash flow and we pay our service providers that are our partners uh, that work with our tenants to keep people housed. All right, I'm going to pause again because I need another drink. It's a give you guys the opportunity to comment or ask questions or anything you want. Take a break yourself. Okay, moving on. Um, I probably should have had this slide a lot earlier, but um, this is actually the sources of funds. Remember when I told you we converted our, our public housing to project-based vouchers and HUD didn't necessarily give us money to make our capital investment in our buildings or if we had to build new? Um, and this is the sources of funding. Um, the vast majority was this low-income housing tax credit. Oops, so sorry. Uh, equity. Um, we took out some loans from a variety of financial institutions. The city of Ann Arbor put in, this is before the millage, uh, put in funds um, from a variety of different sources. And um, the Housing Commission had some of our own um, reserves that we had from our public housing side, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the DDA put in significant funds, which is also a unusual for a downtown development authority. I think it's happening more and more, but back when we were doing this, it was um, unique and unusual for a downtown development authority to invest in affordable housing. So we greatly appreciate that partnership. And then you can see we had some small HUD grants um, that we used as well. The, the county um, in partnership with the city and other municipalities has a Brownfield Redevelopment Authority. They also have been unique in that they have funds within that, um, within their purview, they do mostly tax increment financing. And since we don't pay taxes, we can't take advantage of it, but they set aside a portion of that payment uh, for grant funds for municipal um, as well as nonprofit affordable housing development. So that's pretty awesome too. This is um, the city's um, city council's goals and objectives. We're trying to get a uh, thousand units of affordable housing by 2026. Um, doesn't have to be built by the Housing Commission, can be built by anybody. It could be those market rate developers, including affordable. It can be a for profit affordable housing developer, but trying to at least get almost a thousand units in the next couple of years. Okay, I'm going to talk about, um, I think I feel like I'm missing. Must, it's either if I if I get to a point where I haven't talked about the millage, I must have it a little bit later. So um, 
prior to the city's affordable housing millage being adopted, the city um, had um, reacquired 350 South 5th, the former Y lot across from the library. And so they reacquired it from the private developer they had sold it to because uh, they hadn't met the agreement of what they needed to do. And so the intent was to buy it back and ensure that affordable housing gets built on that site. It's been 20 plus years or about 20 <laughs> years since the old Y was demolished. We still haven't figured out how to do affordable housing on that site, which is weirdly challenging. Um, so when we were looking at that site and seeing, you know, how would we go about doing affordable housing there? Um, I talked to the city about the fact that anyone doing affordable housing develop in, development in Ann Arbor uh, cannot compete with the private sector to acquire properties because we don't have a line of credit of $20 million or $10 million or cash in our bank um, to, you know, when a mark a uh, property comes on the marketplace to say, hey, I've got, you know, $5 million cash or whatever it is to buy your property. Like we simply can't compete because of that chart I showed you with all those different funding sources. It can take us two years to apply for and braid together all those different funding sources they have. Each have their own cycle of applications, their own requirements. It just takes a really long time. And so I said, look, we should um, look at other sites that the city owns to see if there's um, any other sites that make sense to develop as affordable housing. So these are the sites. The city basically went through all their portfolio of their um, underutilized properties, I'll say, um, that potentially could have affordable housing. So these are all the different sites. And what we did is we did an analysis of what land use restrictions are on these sites. Are there uh, what was the zoning there? One of the sites, maybe even two, had a FEMA grant. One had an MDEQ grant. One was a park property. So there's certain sites that because of the deed restrictions, they could not be used as affordable housing or any other um, thing but what the deed restricted it to. Uh, we looked at environmental conditions. Ironically, um, a property that is contaminated is not necessarily um, excluding it from being affordable housing because you can clean it up. You can clean it up to residential standards. You can access money to clean it up to residential standards, but there are things that make it harder to build in. So if it's in the floodplain, um, you can elevate it above the floodplain, but you can't use HUD funds. If it's in the floodway, you can't build any kind of residential housing. Um, if you have HUD funding, um, they have noise restrictions. Um, so there's different things we looked at. If it's existing buildings, you know, is there existing contamination in the buildings that you have to deal with? So we looked at that. And we also looked at doing some financial modeling, um, what funding sources are available and what aren't and how could you braid those together? Um, and then we looked at other things like, is this a good site for home ownership or co-op or rental or, you know, different kinds of things? What's the market demand, et cetera? This was back in 2019, we did this analysis. And so then we uh, made a recommendation to city council on what could potentially happen at all of these different sites. And then in 2020, um, the city of Ann Arbor residents passed the affordable housing millage, which is a very nice pairing with a 
developing housing on city owned land because because the city owns it we can take time to pull together all those different funding sources that i was talking about we don't have holding costs we're not competing with the private sector um, and so it does enable us to have a better shot at developing affordable housing um, so thank you anybody who um, voted in favor of the affordable housing millage uh, greatly appreciate that because we're making some progress on trying to get some more housing um what the millage said was that the whatever this millage is used for it's up to 60 percent of the area median income um it's a 20-year millage one mill uh 1.0 mill in the first year it generated about six and a half million dollars now here we are in year two or about to go into year three and our projections for year three i want to say is 7.1 or two million dollars can't remember um within the charter not on the ballot but in the charter it also indicated that up to 20 percent of the millage can be used on services for the residents of that housing whether it's home ownership, whether it's rental, whether it's co-op, um, but it also has a clause that says you cannot be used in a floodway or floodplain, um, and so that excluded uh, one of the properties from being able to use the millage. What city council did before um, the community adopted the millage is they adopted some principles and guidelines of how they wanted it used. Um, so I'm not going to read all of these; you can see them. Uh, but basically, from a big picture perspective, trying to have um, socioeconomic diversity throughout the city, like I talked about previously, um, having housing for all different types of households, having variety of resident services available. Um, it's available for new construction, but it's also available for acquisition. Uh, it's available to do the underground infrastructure, et cetera. I want to adopt the city the city sustainability goals um i will as an affordable housing advocate i would never use only millage funds to do a development because i can leverage as hard as it is i can leverage other funding sources um and turn a city dollar into five dollars or ten dollars depending on where i can leverage funds and build a lot more housing. It adds more regulatory barriers, or not barriers, regulatory compliance, so it is barriers too, um, that we have to follow uh, when we do get funding from other sources, but it, it enables it to go a lot farther than just using millage funds. And then the final thing was, to the extent that we can, that it's permanently affordable. So the low-income housing tax credit being the biggest source of funding for affordable housing currently has a uh, the IRS has a 15-year compliance period, and then a development can literally go market rate, um, which is you have seen, we've seen that throughout the county from the first tax credit projects from the 1980s uh, and 90s have now converted to market rate housing. The state of Michigan now has a 30-year compliance period, but anything that we use millage funds on, if it's rental housing, um, or I guess it's if any of those kinds of housing, actually, uh, we put a, a deed restriction. We put a, a restriction that makes it affordable uh, permanently. So you can be confident that your funds will be used in the long term. Blah, 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 blah. This is what we're doing. 
a lot of words. Um, I'm going to show you some examples of um, some of the projects that have the millage funds have already gone into. So Avalon was in the middle of developing uh, two sites, and they were they needed some gap final financing because of what's happening post COVID with the marketplace, supply chain, um, human beings to do the work. Like when we we just got an estimate on uh, one of our projects, and the construction costs came in 55% higher than pre-COVID estimates. So it's a it's a real significant increase in construction costs right now, which is actually forcing me to look more seriously at acquisition. Um, the barriers to acquisition are often they aren't um, accessible. Usually they're all stairs every single unit. Uh, there's often lead-based paint, asbestos, issues that we have to deal with from an environmental perspective. Um, they need, often need code um, uh, code, code improvements. Um, we bought Lurie Terrace, that senior uh, high-rise. It doesn't have fire suppression in the units. And so we're going through an engineering process to design our fire suppression system. And it's looking like a $2 million investment that we'll have to put in just to put in fire suppression, where if we had built that new, it would have been part of our design and our development cost. And we, you know, built it the way we wanted it with, you know, sustainability features, all that kind of stuff. So I do also get from the community, why aren't you just doing acquisition? It's so much cheaper. And like, depends on what it is and how much money I got to put in after I buy it. So it doesn't always end up being uh, less costly. Um, anyway, okay, back to Hickory Way. So this is a three-phase project. Uh, Avalon Housing, a local nonprofit, is building. Uh, they do all uh, supportive housing for homeless households, and they had a $26.5 million budget, and uh, $5.5 million in millage funds are uh, going into that project. I think they need some additional funds, if I remember correctly, because their costs have gone up. Um, but that's again in, uh, showing how the millage is leveraging or um, a small portion of a larger development budget. Um, then they're also requesting funding for ongoing services as well. They also have a project called the Grove at Viridian, which is on the old county farm park next to the county farm park where the old juvenile justice center is. So they are actually partnering with a private uh, for-profit developer where they're having a, their portion is the um, affordable housing and then the, the private developers doing market rate housing, but they're trying to make it a look as seamless and integrated as possible. So like if you drive by, you shouldn't be able to necessarily tell uh, which houses are what. Um, their development budget right now is closer to 20 million. Um, and although it says 11 million in millage development dollars, that's an error. It's a uh, 1.9 million. I mistyped uh, it. And then they have about $300,000 a year that they're requesting for um, services for this site. So that's 50 additional affordable housing units that they're closing on their financing um, next month. And the thing about these development projects, not just the affordable, but just the private sector, but even more so on the affordable side, is they can take three, four, five, six years from concept idea to human beings moving into their um, apartment. It takes a long time to do development, a very, very long time. 
All right, I'm going to pause there because I've been talking for a while. Is there anybody who'd like to make a comment or have questions? No questions, but thank you. <laughs> and I think we're scheduled to not go beyond 8.30, and I believe I will end prior to that, in case you're wondering how much longer I am going to talk. Um, I'm just going to go through some of the sites that we are working on um, and let you know where we're at. So we went through a pretty extensive public engagement process back in 2021, and then COVID hit, and everything we were doing in person ended up going online and kind of derailed our, our process. But uh, we did get some uh, decent amount of community engagement done. Here's the locations of all those properties that the city identified as potential affordable housing, two of which we've already uh, ruled out. One is where the Senior Community Center is in Burns Park because it's got a deed restriction on the entirety of that park um, that restricts just based on the deed restriction. It doesn't say you can't do affordable housing, but it, it makes it nonsensical the way the deed is, the re restriction on there. And the other one is uh, 104, 120 West William, which is currently a surface parking lot with a railroad running through it and um, in a floodplain, floodway, one or the other. Um, and it has a city council restriction on it that you know could change uh, um, for the use, but the other ones are still potential sites. So this just sort of explains what we did. And then now I'll go into some of the actual property. So this is the former Y site. Um, I actually worked at the city when the site was first uh, purchased from the old Y and the city condemned the building while I was working in community development. And I had the pleasure of loading people on a bus in 24 hours to find a hotel or uh, for them to live in because of the pipes that were um, bursting and collapsing in the building. And uh, it happened to be October when we did that. Does anybody have any idea what challenge might happen in October in finding hotels? Michigan football games. Michigan football games. I think we had two weeks and then we had to relocate, relocate everyone to another location far enough away from Ann Arbor that we weren't impacted by the football games. <laughs> that was exactly what happened. Um, so we're in the, we had a um, PUD planned unit development in supplemental regs, which is the zoning part of what happens on a property approved by city council. It's not the same thing as a site plan, which is a more specific details of an actual building and where the um, all the details of what happens on the building. The supplemental regs is like, a, here's the box you have to build in. Here's the sort of big picture stuff. Um, so we're, we proposed roughly 300 apartments, about uh, just under 100 of them on in one tower, just over 200 in another tower, a mix in one, two bedrooms. Um, in the regulations, it said we'd have to do a minimum of 100 units at affordable because there used to be 100 SRO, single room occupancy units at the site. Um, and we and the city council wanted not just a minimum of 100, but a minimum of 40% of the total units at 60% AMI or less. And we made a commitment to the city's net zero 2030 goals as well as a city owned you know, project, property, et cetera. 
Um, we are committed to partnering with the DDA, Downtown Development Authority, as well as the Ann Arbor Area Transportation Authority, um, the ride, because the Blake Transit Center is adjacent to this site. Um, over the course of these 20 years, they've tried to acquire the site at various points in time. They tried to partner with various private developers and the, everything kept falling through. So I'm like, okay, it's publicly owned. We're a public entity. You're a public entity. We have to try to make this work and they need to be able to expand their uh, transit downtown. That's where they're centrally located. Um, and they, the, ideally it would be on the other side of the Blake because uh, it's safer for folks to cross a sidewalk than across a road. And so we've integrated an expanded Blake Transit Center into our design. It makes the project really complicated uh, and harder than it would be if we were just doing housing, but it's definitely a needed public benefit for this site. We actually have an L-shaped building. So the Blake Transit lane that you see, that gray lane, it actually goes, it's uh, underneath part of our building, but we also have a, um, you can't really tell, but there's like an overhang over it uh, as well that'll be on the rest of it. Um, this is the current design uh, that we have. This is not an approved site plan. We're still working through a lot of ideals. This is more of a concept of what we'd like to have there. Um, that's just the view from one location, the south, whatever that says, I can't see it. Um, this is from over uh, across from the library view. And this is from where the Blake is. And you can see where there's a bus kind of going under a building overhang and it comes out onto 4th Avenue. Uh, another site we have is at 121 East Catherine. It's another surface parking lot. We're actually in the process of getting site plan approval as we speak. It's already got by right zoning uh, as a D2 district, downtown two, D2 downtown two district. Um, we're supposed to go to the planning commission next Tuesday, actually. Um, this is 66 units. We have had to make multiple modifications um, as we go through the site plan, design, discussions with city staff and code issues. So now we're down to 63 units. Um, all 62 out of the 63 units are actually one bedroom. We had to reconfigure the, the units. I just didn't have time to update this before this meeting. My apologies, my apologies. Um, and then we have one two bedroom. So it's intended as a site for primarily single adults. It could be couples, uh, but not, specifically targeted towards families. Um, and the one two bedroom that we have, we do find that we have single adults that are in, um, that have a, a mobility issue that is severe enough that they require a 24 seven uh, caregiver. And so you you can have, be in one of our rent subsidized apartments and have a, a full-time caregiver with their own bedroom as well. And then our intent is this to be half supportive housing and half for folks who are in the um, in the arts and creative fields. You don't have to have make a living doing that, but somehow you're either partially full or um, as a hobbyist, you know, do something in the creative fields. Um, we are. This is the building that is in the previous uh, black neighborhood, black business district. So in trying to honor that history and um, provide something 
that the Black community thinks is also important to them, we've actually formed a community leadership council made up of previous residents, current residents of this neighborhood, and some young folks in the arts fields that are um, looking at the first floor space. I think I have a diagram. There we go. So that purple um, space is not specifically for the residential support. So it's an extra space that would otherwise be a, you know, whatever, a CVS or something downtown. So we don't want to do that. We want to do something that's um, has a public purpose. And so we're looking at some kind of, they're, they're coming up with some kind of cultural community space um, that we're going to try to design and build here. So we're super excited about that. Um, you also see that we are trying to preserve as much parking as we can there. They're just different designs. Another site is 415 West Washington. Um, this has a lot of challenges. It's a challenging no matter what you build there. I don't care if it's residential, affordable, market rate, commercial, office, like the site is very challenging. So we're trying to address a lot of public purposes there as well. Um, and we are, what our plan is, is um, it's in a brownfield. The city's going through and, and they've done the um, testing for what contamination is there. So they have to go uh, work with the state on a, a brownfield plan to address that. Um, there's a chimney swift habitat where you can see that little chimney sticking up that um, folks who are, that that is of concern to them. We've promised to try to preserve that if we can. Um, there's folks who are part of the Greenway initiative, and we've committed to uh, dedicating some land for the Greenway area. Um, this is not a site you can use millage funds because it's in the floodway floodplain. And so we have to do an elevated, we're going to demolish the building, um, deal with the brownfield, deal with all those issues, and then the building itself has to be elevated. And it can't be on the floodway portion. Uh, it can only be in the floodplain portion. Um, so this is kind of the an idea of what it could look like. We are going through the zoning approval process right now. And then the idea is that we would do a request for proposal for a private developer to develop the site. It's, it's gonna be mostly market rate with some affordable housing because of all these challenges to develop. It makes it even more expensive to do the development. So it, it's not financially feasible as like an all affordable housing project. Um, and that's about, I forget, I want to say 120-ish, 130 units. I can't remember exactly. Um, and then this is kind of what it would look like from downtown um, city, Ann Arbor City Apartments looking out uh, west. You can see that white trail in front is the dedicated uh, greenway uh, tree line trail space. And then you can see there's also, barely see, but there's still a, like a chimney swift habitat preserved in this view. And this is kind of what you can see from uh, like what the first ground floor is, which is really mostly parking and then stormwater retention and uh, trail. 353 South Main. Um, it's on the corner of Main and William. It's a small site and um, it's actually really scores highly in all kinds of competitions that you'd apply for funding because it's in a walkable, accessible, um, near services type of location. 
we're looking at this more as the working uh, low-income folks, not so much uh, homeless households at the lowest end, but more of the you know people making twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars uh, target. Um, it could be you know a six story, it could be a ten story. We haven't really gotten that far in our process to figure out you know what that's going to look like yet. Um, this parking lot is another one of the uh, identified sites on the corner of Ashley and William. It's a humongous site, very important location uh, for parking in support of downtown merchants. So the plan really is to have more community discussion and uh, about what could happen there. We know that we would need to replace and probably add parking there if, if we do any development there. So it's in the... Uh, kick the bucket down the road and have more community discussions uh, as we're at on this site. And these are just some conceptual ideas that our, um, that uh, Smith Group came up with when we did our community engagement, um, trying to figure out how much parking people thought was important, how much down, you know, first floor retail, again, pre-COVID, um, and then how much residential and, you know, could be a portion affordable, mostly market rate, whatever, all kinds of, there's a hundred different options. Um, this site, 721 North Main, is currently a dilapidated junkyard that the city uses for any random thing that we need to get rid of that they don't want to take to the actual uh, junkyard. Um, so, it's all in the floodway floodplain. There's also a FEMA grant that was used to demolish a building. So you cannot build anything on that site except for just like a pavilion or like benches or things like that. You can put a trailway there, um, except for this corner uh, that you see in orange is actually out of the floodway. Uh, it's high and dry. It doesn't have that FEMA restriction. And so what we're in the middle of doing is um, going through a lot split process so that we can actually develop a small something there. It might be five townhomes, it might be 12 um, units, it's going to be something pretty small. Um, this site is um, on Ashley Street. It's also a, it's not a giant site, but it's a really good uh, location scores highly uh, for a modest size, you know, 50, 60, 70 unit apartment. Um, we're looking at potentially maybe senior housing or family housing. Um, we still have to go through more of a community engagement process on this as well. 2000 South Industrial is a site that um, our, the city of Ann Arbor has a lot of different uses happening there. It's where that blue water tower is. If you drive down industrial, there's like concertina wire uh, surrounding this site. It looks like a jail. Uh, that's where my offices is. That's where Heather offices are. That's where our maintenance offices are. Um, it's also a site where the city has uh, gas tanks for our fire trucks and other vehicles, as well as electric vehicle chargers. So uh, we're working with the rest of the city's uses here, but the intent is to do some kind of housing there. This is just one design idea. This is not what's going to happen here. Just be clear up front. This is just like, oh, what about this? Um, that one of our architects came up with uh, that includes housing as well as office and uh, maintenance space. So um, 
nothing final here. We're just in the concept stage and in the um, feasibility stage. Um, this is 1510 East Stadium. It's fire station number two. Uh, where the shadow of that building is to the left is the Dairy Queen, just to put you in, in uh, perspective for anybody who lives in that neighborhood. So this could be um, four townhomes, duplexes. It could be four-story, 20-unit building. Um, it's hard to score um, this for many funding applications because it's, it's not a highly walkable area, uh, but it's a modest size. And in a you know a good location, this is like my neighborhood. Um, it's a nice location to do affordable housing. Um, we just got to figure out how to how to finance it. And I think this is our final site. Um, this is on between Platt and Springbrook, and it's this weird long property that runs between uh, two residential streets. And we're looking at that as potentially some modest size starter homes, like a habitat home, or, you know, uh, just small um, homes, like single family homes, because that matches what's, you know, in that neighborhood right now. Okay, I'm gonna stop right there and see if there's any comments or questions about any of these city owned sites. I guess one comment I have is I'm kind of surprised at the sites that you show that are in downtown Ann Arbor. Um, that there is parking allocated for those. Um, it, it, is that, did I see that correctly, that there are like ground level parking spaces? Because it seems like that it would not be the best use of space. Yeah, so that that's at Catherine. Um, that's probably, I can't say for sure, but of, of like for the one, the farthest that we're along, um, that is a site that has had more controversy about the parking than about the housing by far. That's like the number one discussion on like both ends of the spectrum from um, like you're saying, shouldn't have any parking to, why are you getting rid of our parking? I need to be able to park and go to the farmer's market. And so what I said to the uh, community is, we'll preserve as much parking as makes sense that won't be of detriment to the development that we're gonna do for the residential. And so we're down to 16 parking spaces right now, um, two of which are dedicated to, we're actually gonna purchase electric vehicles um, for two, two electric vehicles for residents to share and use um, so that they have less need for, you know, if they need a car to go to the grocery store or things like that. Um, and then 14 of them will be public parking. Um, and that was in support of Carytown Business District that really uh, felt like it would be harmful to their businesses to get rid of all the parking. Okay, thanks. Yeah, no problem. Other questions, thoughts? I love it, Ken, that you asked that question because that, like I said, is the number one thing that people think about for that site, and not the other sites. <laughs> Actually, I have to admit that is the, when you showed that site, that is the one that made me first think that. Because <laughs> I'm familiar with that area and you know, yeah, there's a parking lot there, but it seems kind of silly to preserve any parking spots. Um, I mean, you know, anyway, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hasn't been 
easy, um, but we're trying to be a good neighbor as well. It, it, it has made some challenges in, in our development, having to meet both. So there's no parking required under zoning. Um, there are open space requirements. So trying to meet open space requirements and also trying to preserve parking and have a place for um, garbage removal and, and um, you know a place for a picnic table or that kind of thing. Like those are all competing uses on that space 100%. Anybody else comments or questions? Okay, I have one last thing to talk about. Um, and if we have, if people wanna just talk in generality, actually, I'm just gonna open it up for any, any general comments. I do have one last thing to talk about, but it's kind of bureaucratic. So I would rather that we talk about whatever you guys wanna talk about, give you that opportunity first. I am really surprised at just how complicated it all is. That feels like a simple thing. Maybe I should have been aware of that. But um, so I appreciate in your presentation how much you're showing the complexity of how we get more affordable housing in the city as this has been talked about. It feels like for a really long time um, and not a ton of progress seen so far. So this presentation is really helpful in just understanding like how very complex this is. And I'm sure the last three years have really thrown a wrench into plans that were, you know, ongoing and, you know, going on forward and had to be paused or rethought. And so um, I'm just really surprised and really grateful for the information. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. And you're right. It is way more complex than people understand just as a um, human being in the world. <laughs> I had a, a quick question. So obviously a lot of these are in the planning stages. And so what would sort of be the reasonable timeline for actually implementing most of these um, or building most of these? And in the meantime, will like voucher programs um, continue to, to expand or like meet the, the current need? Yeah, great questions. Um, Catherine, uh, if we get site plan approval um, next week, our next thing after that literally is a week or whatever, two weeks later, April 3rd is the deadline for us to put our tax credit application in. Uh, if we get funded, uh, our first try in that competitive round, then we will close on our financing early next year and start demolition and construction in 2024. That is the farthest along we are on any of these properties. Uh, 350 South 5th and 415 West Washington are right behind there, but probably wouldn't actually see any um, demolition, new construction happening maybe in 2025 more likely in 2026. Uh, now that I've got Heather on my team, I can start doing making faster progress on uh, the other sites. So um, we're doing stuff simultaneously. So once stuff get into the, now we've got the site plan approved, we've got our financing together, we're gonna start construction. Then Heather and I go back to concept, community engagement, 
site plan approval. So we'll have stuff under construction while we're doing that sort of conceptual community uh, part and design part. And so most of these, uh, if we actually end up developing all these sites, which we may not be able to, uh, but if we did, it's probably a 10 year, easily a 10 year process um, before they're all done. Um, to your other question about vouchers, only about, I've seen both one in four and I've seen one in five households that are eligible for a voucher actually have one. So the, the need is there. We have over um, 3,000 people on our wait list for the housing that we own. We have um, 4,000 people on the wait list for our tenant-based vouchers. So there's huge, huge demands, but we're also seeing increases, not by the thousands, but by the hundreds uh, in the HUD programs, uh, HUD funding for more voucher programs. So I do see that nationally, it's becoming more politically okay and supported to talk about um, affordable housing like it wasn't 10 years ago at all. So I'm hopeful for that. Great, thanks so much. Yep, no problem. All right, I'm gonna end on a whimper instead of a bang. No, that's actually exciting for us, but might not be as much for you guys. Um, so in 2022, uh, we competed for a designation called uh, Moving to Work, um, but was specifically related to landlord incentives. Um, this is a, within our voucher program, HUD has these different things that they're trying to um, uh, test. So like they test different ideas. Um, and so they'll take a small cohort that you can apply for. And they say, if you get this designation, here's what you can do. But we want to have, we you have to talk to our um, folks that are going to analyze what the impact is. So we applied for this designation um, and we won uh, the ability to have flexibilities in our voucher program. It's a five-year study. Uh, what are the flexibilities? The flexibilities are, and the intent is to allow us to use our rent subsidy and not our administrative fee to do um, creative things to incentivize and help tenants actually find and lease up housing, stay in their housing, and to provide incentives to landlords who may not otherwise participate in our program. Um, so things like pay for security deposits, pay for uh, renter's insurance, things that they need to move in like literally when we house homeless households, we will help them find a bed and you know get towels and things like that. Um, now we don't have to raise money from a separate nonprofit. We can actually use our HUD bucket of money uh, to do these kinds of things. Um, on the landlord sides, we're doing things like providing incentives to participate like one-time things. We're gonna pay for vacancy payments. Um, we're going to help with repairs if somebody damages their apartment and isn't able to pay for them. So sometimes when that happens, the landlord's like, I don't want to rent to your folks anymore because this last tenant damaged my apartment, whereas 25 other tenants wouldn't have done that. So we try to keep our, our landlords in place uh, once they participate. So that's super exciting for us. Um, and so we're part of this five-year um, test program to see how successful we are in keeping people housed. 
um, oops, that is long gone. That will be the end. That's the end of my presentation. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. This is a long two hours. I'm sick of hearing myself talk, so I can imagine how you guys feel. Um, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> you're welcome. Is there anything else anyone anything else anyone would like to say? Thank you, Jennifer. Hey, you're very welcome. I right, well, think thanks. that's it. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Thanks for um, sitting through that. And uh, I wish you all uh, the best in your, I know you have what, probably like 10 different presentations you're, you're going through. So I think it's great that you guys are dedicating your time to learning about um, how the city works and public service. That's awesome. Yeah, it's very informative. That's <laughs> and you. everything. Thank you so much, Jen. And um, I will see everybody next week. Everybody have a great night. All right. Thank you, everyone. Well.